0: for God's help as we turn to the Bible gracious God we recognize that what you have to say to us is of far greater significance than what we have to declare to you even when we declare your praises and so we ask humbly and expectantly that you will speak to us as we turn to the pages of the Bible and that in hearing from you we might respond properly As a result of your enabling grace, for we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. A Thursday evening, my wife and I were in the box office of the London Palladium. Please don't be alarmed by that. Uh, We saw a sign outside that said it was going to show the sound of music. And uh, since that is a favorite, at least of my wife's, uh, we ventured in. Mercifully, we made it back out again without getting any tickets. But um, much to the encouragement of my daughter who was traveling with us. She couldn't think of anything much worse than being stuck in between her mother and father in London on a Thursday night, listening to the hills coming alive with the sound of music. But anyway, I mention that simply because it was in there that I I thought of Einstein. Uh, That is Albert Einstein. You know the one who said, the men who know the most are the most gloomy. He's also the one who, in his credo in 1932, and this was what came to mind in his credo, in his diary, he wrote, Our situation on this earth seems strange. Every one of us appears here involuntarily and unwanted for a short stay without knowing the whys and the wherefores. Now, I know you're intrigued as to why I would think of that in the box office of the Land of Palladium. Well, that's because I saw a picture of Petula Clark. <laughs> so it's all fitting in, isn't it? <laughs> well, of course, if you're old like me, then you remember these lines. You wander around on your own little cloud, but you don't know the whys or the wherefores. And what Einstein said at a significant level, the writer of that song said at a far more popular level, but acknowledge something in the heart and mind of men and women. And it is that very issue that is addressed by Paul here as he comes into the magnificence of the city of Athens and as he recognizes that what is represented there speaks to the religious nature of man, speaks to the quest of man for significance and so on. And unlike ourselves, when we go to wonderful cities, and this week I have been to some, to Liverpool, to Cardiff, to London, to Glasgow, and then finally to this wonderful city, but when we go into those cities, we are made aware of the fact that they are expressive in more ways than we recognize of the quest of men and women for something that will make sense of their lives. And tonight, this congregation is either in the position of saying that as a result of God's goodness, uh, we have put together the pieces of the puzzle, we have understood something of who we are and why we've been created, we've recognized why Calvin said, what is most essential is that man knows who he is and knows who God is. That may be you, but you also may be in the position where you've been brought along this evening to this event, <laughs> you're intrigued by the fact that the minister stood up, And one of his opening gambits was, I want you to get out of here as fast as you possibly can. (laughs) And finally, if you find yourself saying, well, at least he's figured out the way I feel when I come to these things. And uh, suddenly he's on my side. But it may well be that you find yourself here as a result of an invitation. And quite honestly, as you look, as it were, at the front of the jigsaw puzzle of life, and you see the picture there, and then you look at the pieces of your own life, you may find that everything is not just fitting in in the way that you imagined. Now, what I really want to do is preach Paul's sermon. If you're going to preach someone else's sermon, you better make sure it's a good one. And all that I want to do in the brief time that we have is simply to trace the line that Paul traces as he addresses these people. And you will notice that he is very uh, gracious in the way he uh, puts himself within the context. He doesn't begin by chastising them for their idolatry. He simply seizes upon it as an opportunity, as a springboard for telling them about the living God. I can see, he says, that you folks are interested in religious things. Were that not the case, your city would not be swamped by all these various idols and statues that I've found as I've been going around. And I am, he says, most intrigued by the way in which you've covered your basis, because you've even put a statue there uh, to the unknown God. And he might have said, and I appreciate your honesty in that. I appreciate the fact that even in your idolatry you're not conclusive, that you've left the door open, as it were, for the possibility that there may be another explanation to the universe, that there may be another dimension of life that is worthy of consideration. And he may have said, and if that is how you're thinking, I would like to follow that line with you and address you as follows. Now, he stands in the, in the shadow of the Acropolis and the Parthenon. He stands in all of the magnificence of the architecture which some of us have gone out to see. And in the midst of that, he is forceful, he is clear, he is kind, and he is straightforward. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. One of the reasons for so many empty churches in the British Isles is the equivocation from pulpits. is the inability of those who should know better to speak with the same kind of clarity that the Scriptures give us to speak. To be prepared, to be humble, and to be honest, to be kind, and yet to be clear, and to start where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth though everyone may rail against it, though those within the framework of Christendom may worry about it. It is to the ministers, it is to the pastors, it is to the pulpits that the challenge is given to speak what God himself says. You do not need to go far from here to come immediately upon statues in this city that are there to mark the impact of men in pulpits throughout the centuries who were prepared not to fear the faces of their congregation, because they feared the face of God. And in light of that, to say what God says. That's all he does. Look at what he says first. God made the world and can't be contained in a shrine. That's his first point. You cannot limit God, and you cannot localize God. It is absolutely impossible Every attempt at it is absolutely comes to a crashing end. It is an attempt somehow or another to make God come to us when in point of fact he is far and beyond us. Now we should recognize that the people to whom he was speaking on this particular occasion had invited him. He had gone into Athens and he had spoken where he liked to speak. First in the synagogues, if you like, he went to the church. And when he was out and about, he spoke in the marketplaces where people happened to be. And then he spoke, if you like, to the intelligentsia, to the university and college crowd. And it was on that occasion that they invited him to come to this special opportunity to meet and greet and speak to those who, Luke tells us, spend their their time doing nothing except talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It was a kind of forerunner of Starbucks. It was a gigantic Starbucks. That's what it was. People just sitting around in there, angling for the soft chairs and trying to get in a corner. And if there's a chessboard, that's fine. And if there isn't, then perhaps we can speak the things that matter, you know, and talk about poetry and philosophy and ideas about the universe. And the ideas about their universe were largely two. One group were Liverpool supporters. Que sera sera, whatever will be will be, the future's not mine to see. Que sera sera. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or they were stoics, fatalists. We shouldn't rage against the machine. Hey teacher, leave those kids alone. You're just another brick In the wall. And to these people, he says, Number one, God who made the world cannot be contained in your little shrines. Number two, this same God, verse 25, does not depend on us. We depend on him. That was a counterintuitive notion as well. For they had gods of their own contriving. Oh sure, there was Zeus and Apollo and all the rest, but in fact, deep inside of them they knew that they largely orchestrated those events. There was nothing that spoke otherwise. Not only did God create life, he says, but he sustains that life, and we are dependent upon him. It's a it's a great thing. You you need to keep that in mind, that verse. Uh, Verse 25, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Everything else. When you watch the weather forecast, you need to have this verse in mind so that you can shout out at the television. When the silly lady says, well, let's see what Mother Nature has for us tomorrow morning. She has nothing for you tomorrow morning. For God who created the planets and called the stars into space orders the tides and in his providence makes the grass grow. That's what Paul is saying. That's what the Bible says. Thirdly, this God is in charge of history and he is in charge of geography. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God has acted in this way and done so in such a way that human beings made in his image would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That's what he says. The reason that God has done this is so that men might meet him. But, of course, Paul elsewhere, when he writes in Romans, explains that this is not happening. And the reason that it isn't happening is because although in one sense God is not far from every one of us, we are separated from God in our sin. And that is why he is not readily accessible to us. And yet, somehow inside of us, we recognize that God has a control, has a care for us, has an interest in us. Our lives are like ruined castles in the highlands of Scotland. As we drive around and look in through the morning mist, if you squeeze your eyes together, you can imagine what that ruin looked like when it was in full swing, when all the windows were in place, when the lights were on inside, when with the skirl of the pipes, the dancing ensued and the laughter emanated across the hillsides. But it's all gone now. But there is a majesty to it. There is a glory to it. It's a ruin, but it's a glorious ruin. That's what the Bible says men and women are. Glorious as made in the image of God who has established the times and the geographical locations of nations and yet ruined as a result of our rebellion against him. I was reading Augustine lately. I think I saw a picture of Petula Clark. It made me think of him. No, uh, I, was reading, I was reading Augustine. And I had never, I had never thought this in my life until I read it. But this is what he said. He said that men and women are totally unaware of our own blindness apart from the grace of God to show us how blind we are. So that we do not even know that we're missing the point until God first shows us that we're missing the point. And he chooses to do so through his word and by his spirit. He is in charge of history and he is in charge of geography. And this is true whether we recognize it or whether we don't. He's not dependent on us, we are dependent on him. Some of you are here tonight, you're medics, and so you know all about the things that are sustaining us even as you listen and as I speak. All that synovial fluid that is necessary. And as it drains away, we creep coming up these pulpit stairs. All the neurological function, the double circulatory system of the heart, all that oxygenated and deoxygenated stuff that I managed to get a little touch of as far as O-level biology and then I faded very quickly from view. But it all speaks to the fact of who God is. How pathetic is it That man in his proud rebellion would stand against that which is so clearly stated. Fourthly, he is the father of all men and all women by creation. The father of all men and women by creation. He's not referring here to the redemptive relationship between men and women that they enjoy by adoption and by grace. Rather, what he's simply saying is that all of humanity derives its life from God and does so one person at a time. And as a result of that, it's quite ludicrous to think of the Creator in terms of lifeless objects. What is really challenging here as he moves on is the silliness of idolatry. It really is very silly. And you see, an idol, in case we get ourselves uh, confused, an idol is simply a substitute for the living God. It's just something that we worship other than God, whom we were made to worship. And classically, Isaiah describes this in chapter 44 when he, somewhat humorously, I think, and one must be careful when we suggest that things are funny in the Bible, but I do think it is quite funny where he describes the blacksmith taking a a tool and, and fashioning a little thing with hammers and so on, and eventually propping it up and then saying his prayers to it. And then he says, and another fellow goes out and he cuts down cedars or maybe a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest and he planted a pine and the rain had made it grow. And then this is what he says. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. These two fellows go out in the forest, and they chop down a tree. And one says, why don't you take this end, and I'll take the other end. And his friend says, which end is going to be God? Do you have the fire end, or do you have the God end? I mean, that's it, isn't it? We're going to kindle a fire with the other side, but we're going to keep a peace, and we'll set it up. And we'll worship it. I'd love to have seen the faces of these people as Paul worked on this. And as he made this so clear to them. There is absolutely no logic in substituting anything for God. It's simply an expression of our perversity. It's an expression of the fact of our topsy-turviness, if you like. Of the fact that we are nature, by nature, rebellious against the fact that we owe everything to God. Every breath we breathe. The life that we live. And this God is a pursuing God, a God who reaches out to us, a God who, even when we have no interest in him, has an interest in us. I mentioned this morning a fellow I met. His name is Marco. He's been on my mind all day, I must confess. Because one of my opening lines to him was, Are you going to church today? And he said, Funny you should say that. You're the second person this morning that said that to me. I met a friend of my father's, and he goes to Sacred Heart. And he said to me, are you going to church today? And as we parted from one another, and he was asking, does God really speak? I said to him, you know, I think God speaks in ways that you might not be aware of. I think, Marco, he comes and taps on your shoulder. You meet one of your father's old friends in the street. And he asks you, are you going to seek God today? And you meet a funny fellow. And he says the same thing to you. Oh, you see, this God against Whom we rebel and upon whom we turn our backs. It's not a God who's waiting for us to clean up and become nice and fix ourselves. He's a God who comes to us in all of our need of Him. That's what Paul was saying, and he says quite fiercely as well that this same God, this Creator, the One who is not in need of anything that we bring, is the Judge. He is the Judge. He's actually set a day when he will judge the world. And that's why he's commanded people to repent, to turn around, to bow before him. He'll judge the world with justice. He'll be absolutely fair. The judgment of God, he says, will be absolutely fair. It will be absolutely final. The day is absolutely fixed. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Do you remember in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, when uh, Lucy gets in conversation uh, with mrs beaver, and uh she's somewhere she's somewhere here uh in a little sheet of paper um, <laughs> uh, lucy has Lucy has left the building um, oh, I don't think I can do it from memory exactly, and I wanted to quote so much um anyway lucy lucy uh says uh, to uh, mrs beaver but uh am i Am I going to meet him? Is he a king? Oh yes," says Mrs. Beaver. "Is he? A, yes, he's a king." And says Lucy, "Well, then, won't it be won't it be dreadfully frightening? Is he? Is he fearful?" And Mrs. Beaver says, "Yes, he's fearful, but he's also very kind. You can meet him. You see." The great lie of silly attempts at contextualizing Christianity for postmodern people is to suggest that God is simply very kind and to neglect to make clear that he is also fearful. For without the reality of his fearfulness, the kindness is an irrelevancy. And people who can think, figure that out. And if you're here tonight and wondering about these things, go again when you get home, get your Bible, go down through the list, see if what I've been saying actually is in the Bible for a start, and then ask yourself, where do I fit within this picture? For the response of the people was fairly straightforward and pretty quick. As soon as as Paul explained that the significant element in the execution of God's justice was as a result of the fact that God had proved the reality of this in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. These people, who might have been prepared to consider the immortality of the soul, had no concept, had no piece in their puzzle, if you like, for the resurrection of the body. And so the talk was over. And Luke tells us that when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Some of them said, well, maybe we could have another conversation about this. And then you'll notice verse 33. It simply says, at that, Paul left the council. There's no pleading. He doesn't ask the orchestra to start playing songs so that he can hopefully manipulate Uh, their their, their hearts, stir them up in some way. Now, he said, I'm here to tell you today that I think it's quite marvelous that you are such a religious group of people. Fantastic. I I had a great time today looking around your city. I'm intrigued by that that one statue that you have there. Do you know that the God that you don't know about, I can tell you about? Do you know that He made the world and everything in it? Do you know that He made you? Do you know that you depend on Him for everything? Do you know that you cannot localize Him and limit Him? And do you know what He's done? He has provided in the Lord Jesus Christ the answer for your condition. And furthermore, that sacrifice made by that Jesus has been accepted by God the Father and he's been raised to life and you may know him and be changed by him. And they said, we'll hear you later on. And tonight, the reactions will be similar. Let me finish in this way. At this point in the 21st century, We are confronted by unique circumstances on on multiple fronts, aren't we? Our modern world has shrunk. Somebody said to me today that it is only 13 years since we have had the internet. 13 years. And our world is is absolutely tiny. That's number one. Factor number two, there is an increasing quest for unity throughout the entire human race despite all of man's animosity on the basis of religion and so on. It is illustrated, for example, in the Green Movement. The only area in which you can get agreement at this point in the 21st century between people of diverse philosophical and religious religious, uh, backgrounds is on the issue of ecology itself. That is not a comment on the rightness or the wrongness of the issue. It is simply an observation. You're sensible people, you can consider it. The world has shrunk. There is a quest for unity. And thirdly, there is a distaste. There is a distaste for any kind of religious intolerance. Anything that appears to be intolerant of anybody else's views. Therefore, if Charlotte Chapel in this city at this point in time is prepared to scatter Monday through Saturday and live the gospel and declare the gospel, then Charlotte Chapel's members must be prepared to face the cost. And it will cost us, one, to understand how our friends and our neighbors think. We will not win people to Christ by sidestepping their questions and ignoring their problems. It is not enough to bluster our way through. Jesus saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. It will cost us to know how our friends and neighbors think. Secondly, it will cost us to argue and to defend the position that is represented in the Scriptures. It will cost something for us to be able to say, as uh, Paul says to Festus in Acts 26, what I'm telling you is true and reasonable. And thirdly, it will cost us to face up to the charge of arrogance and intolerance. Because it is impossible, it is impossible to declare the message of Paul to the Areopagus in this century without being met by the sneers and the intolerance and the rejection of men and women. And if we are unprepared to face that, then we are unable to meet the challenge of our day. Nowhere in this city will anyone have a problem with a t-shirt that simply says on the front, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Wear it proudly. People will ask for one. Do not wear the complete verse. You may get it ripped off your back. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That is the gospel. That is Paul's message in Athens. That is the tireless, undying message that is to be brought to bear if we're going to reach our cities for Christ. May it be that when we are long gone, if Christ prevails and doesn't return, that in 200 years time from now, the city of Edinburgh will resound still with the praises of the truth of the glory of Jesus that in Christ alone our hope is found. For the fact is that despite the lawyers who are present here with us, despite the wonderful jurisprudence of the Scottish legal system, despite the magnificence of the courts that are within our uh, uh, a, a driver a driver's uh, maybe a three iron for some of you that are within a three iron of where I speak now the fact of the matter is there is a higher throne than all these thrones and it is before that throne that God is assembling a great company that no one can number from every tribe and nation and people and tongue and before that throne we'll stand made faultless through the land Bow with me in prayer.